several times. And in 1 Thessalonians, when we come across the word we, that's referring not particularly to all Christians everywhere through all time. In context, it's referring to Paul and Silas and Timothy, who are reflecting back on their church planning experience with the Thessalonians. They were there three weeks, planted the church, and then moved on. And then this letter comes back to the Christians in Thessalonica to address some of their questions and, and speak to their situation. So that's the we, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Some, some Bibles will say Silvanus, and Silvanus is the same person as Silas, just so you know. Silvanus is the uh, Roman name. Silas kind of pulls off the, the, the Hebrew kind of version of that name. So it's the Silas. This is the church planting trio of Paul, Silas, and, and Timothy who planted the church there. So let me read the text for us. I'll read uh, beginning in verse 1 to verse 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in God, our God, to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is a witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. If you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Amen. Okay, well, let's come back to... Uh, verse 5 through 7 again. And this again is Paul reflecting back on his time with them, the character of their ministry, we could say. And he says this in the three weeks we were with you. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own child. So let me put up a picture real quick. This is just a depiction of a medieval monk copying uh, texts from the New Testament. We have the monks to thank, basically, for the copies of the Greek New Testament that we have and the letters that we have from them. There's no, we don't have any, there's not a single book of the Bible where we have the original. So it's not like you can go to Rome or Florence and see the original First Thessalonians. We don't have any of them, but we have our copies, and we're very grateful for these many copies because from them we compare copies and we come up with what we believe was the most original text. So this is just an image of a monk, maybe we'll say 1,500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, copying the text. And at times, they were doing it in low light, under candlelight, or maybe 
In this, in this setting, it looks like he's doing it in the full light of day. Um, other times, they would be hearing someone read the text, and they'd be saying, okay, what was that? Okay, got it, got it. Other times, they'd have their own copy. They're going back and forth. And as you can imagine, at times, um, they would get an error. They'd mess it up. They'd get a letter wrong. They'd get a word wrong here or there. And when that error got entered, that error got copied, unfortunately. And it got copied by other monks, and that error got um, perpetuated, basically. And we call these textual variants. This is not a surprise to any evangelicals. We've known about this for the entire life of the church. So don't think I'm dropping some bomb on you. Uh, so the question then becomes, how do we come to the original if there is what's called a textual variant? And we have a textual variant in this text. And it's one I think that's interesting enough to worth talking about. So there are two potential words in verse 7. Uh, one is, there's a lot of manuscripts of 1 Thessalonians that have the word gentle, and there's a lot of manuscripts of 1 Thessalonians that have the word babes, babies. That's my world right now. So, so it could, there's many manuscripts that basically read, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own child. In which case, the two phrases modify and support each other, Right? Gentle among you supports how a mother is nursing her child. And the other is there's a lot of manuscripts that have what example of mixing metaphors. We have two metaphors that stand together. They don't exactly modify each other, but they are standing together to explain the same kind of thing. In which case it's, but we were babes among you. One metaphor. Next one, we were like a nursing mother among you with her own children. And for my study, it, it looks like it's, it's most likely... Uh, that babes was probably the original one. I'm not going to bore you with the details of why that might be the case. Um, so that being, and the reason, the reason it was an easy mistake is the Greek word for gentle is apioi, and the Greek word for baby is napioi. And the word right before this ends with a new, an in. So they thought maybe they doubled the new or added it or whatever. So it's an easy mistake to make, right? All that to say, it's probably, I think, babes. So let's talk about babies. What a cute baby, y'all. Whose baby is that? It's my baby. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So um, I'll just say this. If you were preaching and y'all had a baby four weeks ago, you'd do the same thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. I should have put Stephen. I should have put Jaws' baby up here with it. Um, so. This is Silas. This is our Silas. And um, like all four-week-olds, Silas is incapable of words of flattery or a pretext for greed <laughs> or seeking glory from others, right? Um, and as far as I can tell you, he always will be. <laughs> Just kidding, of course. I'm not a first-time parent, so I know that's not true. Um, so the idea is if babes is the original, we were like babies among you guys. Uh, the idea here is that Paul and Silas, um, it's a metaphor for innocence, right? We, we, we came to you, we, we didn't have any, any possible motivation to exploit you, to get glory from you, to flatter you, right? Silas isn't capable of flattering me at this point. Um, so that's... One metaphor, and then you see this family kind of metaphor, series of metaphors coming out. The next one is motherly, right? And we're going to get to a fatherly one in verse 12. 
So, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This image of a nursing mother, right? Actually, in Isaiah, I think it's 66, God likens himself to a nursing mother with Jerusalem. It's a beautiful image we find in Scripture, and Paul picks it up here. And then we've got um, verse 12. Um, well, it goes on to describe their, their motherly care this way. So being affectionately desirous of you, we're ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you've become very dear to us. Um, I love this verse. If you have come through launch track in the past four years, you know that I put this verse up every time to talk about small group involvement. Because I love the picture of truth, sharing truth, and sharing yourself with people. And that's our desire for small groups, that we, sh- we give ourselves away. Okay, so let's continue on to the next metaphor. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, we would expect Paul and Silas and Timothy to describe themselves as a father over their new church plant, right, that they kind of brought about. That checks out. But at the same time, it's fascinating that as a full-grown man, they have no qualms saying, we were like babies with you guys. And then more surprisingly, as a full-grown man, he doesn't hesitate saying, we were like a nursing mother among you guys. There isn't a hint of toxic masculinity in this text. Let's just say it, right? Um, And our prayer is that our little Silas would minister like the biblical Silas in this way, gentle, kind, nurturing, but also like a father ready to charge and admonish and exhort, right? That's how they were among them. And this is how I want to be, this is how I want to minister here at Fullness. Help me when I fail, please. Let's, let's do this together. Let's minister in motherly ways. Let's minister in fatherly ways. Let's charge, let's exhort, and let's be gentle like you're cradling a baby at times. Hopefully all of that is in the way you reach people and love people in Christ's name. Okay, all of that's kind of introduction. And I want to talk now about really verses 12 on. But I did want to say those few things about the character of Paul's ministry, because I think it's powerful, really. Okay, so verse 13 says this. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Given the context here, as we see in verse 2, verse 8, verse 9, um, where the gospel of God is talked about. The word of God, when, when Paul talks about how you heard the word of God from us, that's really shorthand for the gospel. In uh, the, the Pauline letters, not the Pauline letters, you know that from Dave Malik's class. If you've been there, Pauline is a woman in her mid-50s. The, the, that's Dave's joke too. Um, so the, in the Pauline letters, and Paul's letters, when he refers to the word of God, usually he's talking about the gospel message, and he is here. It's the gospel message. I want to tell a story real quick. Um, I was, oh, sorry, let me back up. In, in 19, I was not alive then. In 1972, there was a pastor in his office one day, and an abrasive, dogmatic church member named John Rasputin walks into his pastor's office and says, I don't think you're saved, Pastor. You only preach about the lordship of Jesus, and you never preach about the atoning work of Jesus. 
Now, the pastor didn't really care for this guy in his church. And, um, but the Lord had already been, he'd already acknowledged that this was true, actually, of his preaching. And so he said, what do you propose? Meet me in the sanctuary tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. So he did. He arrived at 6 a.m., met the guy outside, unlocked the doors of the church, walked in the sanctuary. Get on your knees, the man said to his pastor. So he did. And line by line from the script of Evangelism Explosion, the guy asked him through the questions, if you were to die today, why do you think you should get into heaven? And this pastor had a PhD in theology from the University of Edinburgh, but he humbled himself and allowed this man to lead him. And every time the man said, repeat after me, he did, as he went through this sinner's prayer. That man was my grandfather. I call him Papadie. And he told me this story the other day and said, you know, Gabriel, I, I know the Lord was moving in that moment. I, I wanted to find out more. I was interested in this whole evangelism explosion thing. So I went to it and I wanted to kind of hear about the methodology and how they were doing it. And he said, I got to be honest with you. I struggled with it a little bit. It felt kind of like this, say the magic words, Christianity. Hocus pocus, say this prayer, you're in. No matter what, you're going to heaven. No matter what have, whatever happens afterward doesn't really matter. That was the feel he got from it. The same time he said, there has to be a point in which we acknowledge our desperate need for Jesus. He talked about how the pivotal moment for him, though, was the time he was driving in his car, and the words of the hymn, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand, entered his mind. And it's as though the Holy Spirit just said, do you believe it? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Do you believe it, Jack? And he pulled his car over, got out on the side of the road, got on his knees a second time, and said, Lord, I choose to believe it, that you're the Savior, but also the Savior of the world. His grandmother was Jewish. One time she said, I believe Jesus is a prophet, but not much more than that. He struggled with what we would call the exclusivity of Christ, that everywhere else people sink. And that day he said, I'm going to choose to believe this. It's true. Verses 14 and 15 and 16, I'll read these now. Say, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God. And opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but the wrath, wrath has come upon them at last. Let's just be honest. To oppose the message of the gospel is to oppose humanity. Translation, all humanity needs the good news that they might be saved, as the text says. And I understand how troubling that is. I, trust me, I do. Um, as Pastor Bart preached last week from chapter 1, Jesus is described this way. Jesus, comma, who saves us from the coming wrath. You say, Carol, I don't like Jesus described that way. I know you don't. I'm not sure I do either. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. We stand on him. Everywhere else we sink. 
And I realized, trust me, I realized how fantastical the idea of a divine being's wrath against humanity sounds in a post-enlightenment world like our own. I, for years, in my late 20s and early 30s, I struggle with this, with years of sleepless nights, honestly asking if Christianity was even true. And um, those who know me well know the story of how God brought me out of the throes of doubt back into faith. Um, I haven't shared that story publicly here at Fullness yet. Someday I will, I think. <laughs> um, but I was plagued with the thought, what if this whole Christianity thing is just a social game that we Christians play in order to help us cope with a hostile world? Um, what if the faith that I think I share with other Christians is nothing more than a reflection of what all humans do, which is create a social group that we can identify with and preserve in this world, right? We're so good at making tribes. If humans are good at anything, we're good at this. We're good at saying, you guys are my people. You guys are not my people. My people, not my people. Isn't that all religion is, including Christianity, a way in which we just perpetuate that? Or to use the language of this passage, what if the gospel is nothing more than the words of men? E. Stanley Jones said this, Christianity is moonlight, secondhand, built up through centuries. Christ is sunlight, firsthand, not built up through centuries, but revealed from eternity. The revelation of the meaning of God and man and life. Our fellowship must be around the first hand, around the sun, if it be real. Our fellowship must be around Christ, the first hand. Finally, God chased me down and loved a skeptic like me and brought me back to where I started, which was accepting the gospel, the word of God, not as the words of man, but as it really is, as the word of God. And I can testify that this holy message is working in me, as Paul said. Jesus met me, and he keeps meeting me. Guys, my faith was dwindling under the moonlight of Christianity, but it burst into life again under the sunlight of Jesus. Are you fascinated with Christ? I was struck by this quote recently by J.T. English. One of my greatest fears as a pastor is the idea that people might be satisfied with church, but bored with Jesus. It terrifies me that people may enjoy the sermon, participate in small group ministry, volunteer in one of our many teams, and be completely satisfied by their experience, yet be spiritually apathetic toward the person and work of Christ. I believe it happens. And I think it happens in some places because churches are okay with it happening. They wouldn't probably say it that explicitly. I know I speak for Pastor Bard and the elders to say that is absolutely not our heart. That you could like fullness, but be bored with Jesus. We're here for the sunlight, y'all. I want to talk now about how we know. And that's because this gospel works inside you. Verse 12 says this, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you 
into his own kingdom and glory. In verse 12, Paul encourages you to walk in a manner worthy. That's uh, this idiom in, in the Greek, to walk, it's, it's a picture of living. So lots of translations say live in a manner worthy. And the idea here is that your life is in this kind of forward inertia. You're, how are you putting one foot in front of the other? If you're alive, you're in motion. No one's on the bench. How are you putting your feet forward? That's your walk. You're living, right? Dallas Willard tells this, the, this great joke about how, you know, he says, what if we put uh, our deepest desires on our tombstones? She had great teeth. He lost 20 pounds. When I say deepest desires, I really mean the things that consume most of your thought life, right? And sadly, these are the kinds of thoughts that occupy a lot of our brain space, right? If only. And then you think, what if that actually is what was on our tombstones? How humiliating. <laughs> and I'll say that really to shame us, more to say, what are we giving our focus and attention to? How are we? What are the thoughts that are directing our walk? Guys, I have a YouTube addiction. <laughs> I thought about sugarcoating it and saying it nicely more to myself. No, it's just true. Um, I pull up YouTube. It gives me everything I want, which these days is soccer highlights, John Mark Comer sermons, war in Ukraine, and Key and Peele sketches. <laughs> I, I pull it up, and I just feel so seen. Finally, someone gets me, even if it's an algorithm. And the Lord is, is, is just coming and correcting me on my YouTube consumption. Um, and I'm putting checks and rules in place to stem it. Why? Because I want to become some strident legalist? No, because it's not helping me walk in a manner worthy of God who calls me into his kingdom and his glory. And I'm not okay with things that distract me from that. Let's come back to this phrase, though. Paul calls the Thessalonians and ultimately us to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls us. Um, what does that even mean, right? I mean, we, we ask like, oh my gosh, that sounds so uh, intense. <laughs> what does that even mean? Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls us. How could I possibly walk in a manner worthy of God who calls me into his glory? Um, that just seems like, I mean, Paul can't be serious, right? Unfortunately, Paul's not joking. I'm sorry to burst our bubble here. I mean, he, this is not a one-off for Paul. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, and Colossians 1, verse 10, as here, he talks about this idea of walking in a manner worthy of your calling that you have in God. So we can rule out the possibility that Paul's joking. In the past, i got to say, I struggle with this verse and these verses. I'm going to say i got to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. And I think the reason is because I heard it and I was like, that just seems like another unattainable law that I'm just doomed to fail at. And only this is more bitter to me than failing to keep the law of Moses because now I'm failing to walk worthy of Jesus, who's supposed to be the nice member of the Trinity. Just real quick, there's no such thing as the nice member of the Trinity. I'm going to make sure we don't move on before clarifying that. Um, so, but what does it mean to walk worthy of our calling? There's probably a lot of ways to express the same idea. But I think in simple terms, it means this. 
that you keep signing up again. Will you fail? You will. Will you, at times, walk in ways unworthy of your calling? Yes. But Jesus owns you. You belong to him. And so you're going to keep signing up again, asking and examining, God, how is my walk? Because your kingdom and your glory is the trajectory of my lifestyle. That's our prayer. And then Paul, at the end of the letter, in chapter 5, verse 22, has the audacity to say, abstain from every form of evil. Well, there we go again. Seriously, Paul? <laughs> like, every, every form of evil. Okay, that again sounds impossible. Well, guess what the very next verse is? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. True holiness is about being drawn into the character and being of God so that your being and character reflects that of God. And guess what? You can't accomplish that. Actually, let's just put that verse back up for a second again. He's the one who sanctifies you completely. So walking in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his glory that must not be read to mean that it's your job to sanctify yourself, right? I've got really good news for you guys. God is in the habit of sanctifying human beings. He loves it. The Holy Spirit's really good at it, and he's patient with you. And that's a mercy to us. If God were to sanctify you entirely as soon as possible, it would mean a lot more suffering and a lot more testing and a lot more purging of your soul than you and I could handle right now. So he's patient with us. He's gentle with you, not unlike a nursing mother with her own children. God came to the world in a way not unlike how Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica. God came as a babe among us. And Jesus didn't come with words of flattery or a pretext for greed or seeking glory from others. Verse 7, in many ways, could be used to describe the ministry of Jesus, right? Being affectionately desirous of you, he was ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but his own self, because you'd become very dear to Jesus. Or we should say, you were always very dear to Jesus. You always were. You know, what I want to kind of say in this is, coming to verse 13, it's really where I want to camp out for the rest of my message. I'll read the verse again and come to the end. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Which is at work in you believers. You and I are a work in progress. And if the gospel is currently at work in you, and if it's the case that God's work in you is an ongoing work, then it must be okay that you are not yet a finished product. That truth right there should break off self-hatred all across this room. Right? 
It should. Now, I'll be honest with you guys. There's been a lot of times where I've struggled with the doctrine of sanctification. I'm struggling to really believe. Like, do people, I mean, I know there's Bible verses, but do people actually change? Like, I mean, in looking at my own life, saying, it's hard for me to see any discernible growth in Christ's likeness over time. And, and I just kind of, I'm like, but for real, like this, we're actually changing? Struggling to believe in the transformative power of the gospel for real. I know there's Bible verses. You, you hear me, right? Like, but this really happens? I'm not so sure. Um, and I remember a time a few years ago, in a <laughs> particularly cynical moment, I was talking about someone and I said, yeah, I love the guy. He still believes in things like the doctrine of sanctification. What a terrible thing to say as a pastor. <laughs> um, but for real. And sanctification's been a hard one for me. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> um, because it feels like we regress. It feels like we fall back into sin patterns we thought long gone. In recent years, I'd say the past two or three, the Holy Spirit's really been rebuking me, dealing with me on my lack of faith in the transformative power of the gospel. And just personally in my own life, it's mostly come down to me learning to abide in Christ at a deeper level and agreeing with and surrendering to the work of the Spirit within me. And not a much more complicated than that. Just saying, oh, Holy Spirit, okay. You're putting your finger on that? Yeah, I, I agree with you. You're putting your finger on that? Okay, I'll surrender to that work. And I'm just going to keep abiding in you. I mean, John 15 says, if you abide in him, essentially you obey him as you love him. I used to think of the gospel as this kind of proposition, essentially, just a proposition. Um, but it's not just that. It's at work. It's at work in you, as the text says. Let's just say it. Repeat after me. The word of God is at work in me. I, again, I used to think about the gospel, this kind of propositional statement. Basically like, if rejected, then I turn away from the saving work of Jesus Christ. If accepted, then I accept the proposition that he died for my sins and I'm therefore saved. At which point, the gospel becomes this kind of um, declaration uh, that's this sort of artifact of my spiritual journey, which I said over here. Um, and like this, this declaration that talks about how my life was forever changed and it changed the course of my existence, essentially. Not unlike, we could say, the Declaration of Independence. Here's a picture of the Declaration of Independence in its permanent home in the National Archives. Under glass, right? We can go see it there. We honor this document, right? We remember the sacrifices of those who signed it. We know that it set in motion events that forever changed the course of history, course of our nation, our own lives would be different. We give this document pride of place. We value its propositions about the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. But would you say that the doc Declaration of Independence is at work in you? No, right? The word of the gospel is a working word. An active word. It doesn't sit under glass. It runs swiftly and is glorified, as Paul says elsewhere. It's at work 
in you who believe. The declaration for all of its significance is the words of men. Verse 13 again says the, talks about the gospel, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And I just want to highlight this point. The word is at work in you who believe, right? God's at work where faith is present. And, and you guys know this. Faith, oftentimes, it's a daily act of uniting your faith to Christ, believing it's so what God has declared to be true. And then taking heart. And I want you guys to do it right now. Take heart that God's at work in you. And if he is, then it must be okay that you're not yet a finished product. So please stop hating yourself. If that be the case for you. Like so many things in the kingdom, God works by grace through faith. And sanctification is no different than that. I was in um, the office this week and, and Wendy Kuhn told me about how the gospel came to Christian, the Christian community in Jamaica where her parents lived. It came through British missionaries there. The gospel so gripped my dad, she told me this week in the copier room. He said he would wake up every morning at 5 a.m. to pray for us. He led three of his brothers to Christ on their deathbed. And at his funeral, she talked about how, though she didn't know him before he was a believer, people said he was a competitive and angry man. He met Jesus, and slowly, over time, he became a faithful, kind man. Guys, the Declaration of Independence had never done that for anyone. No one's ever said, my life was changed by the 27 grievances against King George. I know that's, that's petty, but my point is this. It's a working word. It's not this, let me put it this way. The gospel is ancient, but it's not an artifact. So at the time of 1 Thessalonians, um, the, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, hadn't even been written yet. The gospel... The gospel word was working in people before 1 Thessalonians was written. I mean, the, go the, the gospel is working in people. The, the, the gospel's not bound to Scripture. You know this, right? Scripture records the purity of the gospel, right? The apostolic gospel. But the gospel was running before 1 Thessalonians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were ever penned. It's living, it's moving, it's working. That's what it does. And it brings you into a new reality, a kingdom, a kingdom with a king, a kingdom with a Lord. And it's not simply good news that you've been forgiven your sins, though that's really important. And if you're struggling with that one, God will send you a John Rasputin to say, Pastor, get on your knees. But it's also an invitation into a new reality, a new way of being, a new way of walking, a new way of experiencing kingdom and glory right? That's what you've been called into through this good news. God calls you into his kingdom and glory. How do you view the gospel? Do you view it like this? As a static message? Or do you view it as something very present tense? God calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. Present tense. 
this word that's at work in you who believe. Present tense, right? The, the good news is God's calling in your life. I'm going to go invite Craig and the team up. God's calling in your life. It's past tense. It's present tense. It's future tense. God's called you right now. God's calling to you. And tomorrow he will be calling you into his kingdom and into his glory. Here's the point. Yes, it's ancient, but it's not an artifact. It's a working word. As we unite our faith to God's activity in your life, which, by the way, is a beautiful thing, just saying, Lord, how are you working in me? Let that be an ongoing dialogue between you and the Spirit. It's so beautiful. Lord, we welcome you in this moment. I just want to invite you all to stand as we go back into worship. Lord, I ask that you would receive our love and our affection. And even now as we sing of you, Jesus, as the rock, I ask that you would just solidify faith in us. Lord, we surrender to you. We accept this word as what it really is, not as the words of men, but as the word of God. In Jesus' name.
today here at Fullness. Just a reminder, this, thank you, Gabriel, for that uh, incredible word you shared with us this morning. And I, I really pray you'll take it from here. Uh, this study is about having a stable faith in an uncertain time.